Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 last week pastor gary wagner had us focused on the new life in christ as paul lays out for us in colossians chapter 2 verses 6 through 15 today we'll continue our look at that new life join us The ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace. Hi there. Welcome to our program. Today, we turn our attention once again to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. It's there that we catch up with our pastor as we look at this new life in Christ that you and I have because of his work on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's all laid out for us right here in Colossians. Join us. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Last week, we looked at the new life we have in Christ and how that was symbolized in the Old Testament by circumcision and how it is now symbolized in the New Testament by baptism. Before we look at this further, let us go ahead and review last week's sermon and a brief look into the theology of circumcision. Circumcision is not a subject you'll find most Christians talking about around the dinner table. And that's quite understandable. In addition to the social awkwardness involved with speaking about cutting away the flesh from the male reproductive organ, there are several reasons why circumcision does not enter into many theological conversations. The first is the fact that it has been replaced with baptism as the sign and the seal of the covenant of grace. In the Old Testament, the covenant people were commanded to bear the sign of circumcision. In the New Testament, they are to receive the sign of baptism. From our text, we see that there is an evident replacement of the sign of the covenant now in the New Testament. Colossians 2.11 and 12 And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, in the removal of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The second reason why circumcision does not enter into our theological discussions is that in most contexts in which it is spoken of in the New Testament, it is spoken of in negative terms. The apostles were constantly reviewing a Jewish legalism that was built on the insistence that circumcision and law-keeping itself were necessary for salvation. And this heresy was creeping into the church at Colossae. The unbelieving Jews trusted in their covenantal status, as well as their own efforts to keep the law for salvation. 
And according to the Judaizers, circumcision was one of many laws one must keep in order to be saved. Other reasons for a lack of discussion on the subject of circumcision was a lack of knowledge of the Old Testament, a devaluation of typology, a failure to understand the external slash internal administration of the covenant, and the lack of biblical theology that finds the realization of all preparatory ceremonies in Jesus Christ. Bearing the sign of circumcision meant induction into the covenant community during the period of Old Testament revelation. Because the Apostle Paul made it absolutely clear that circumcision was meaningless in the New Covenant, many New Testament believers never make an effort to understand the theological significance of it. The distinctive Jewishness of the covenant sign has served to make it an object of misinterpretation and misuse. It was never meant to be a sign that taught that you had to be Jewish and keep the law to be saved. In fact, the bloodiness of it showed that blood had to be shed for lawbreakers. So what was the theological significance of circumcision? When God entered into a covenant with Abraham, he gave him a sign of the covenant that would go on the flesh of all the male children of Israel. And there was a permanency about it that would serve as a constant reminder of the covenantal promises of God. But it was a sign. It pointed away from itself to something else. And what it signified can be seen in three things. Number one, where the sign was applied. Number two, the day on which it was applied. And number three, the bloody nature of the sign. The sign of circumcision was applied on the male reproductive organ, the place from which the corruption of the human nature was passed from generation to generation. While corruption did not only come from the male, the federal representative nature of the covenant, was shown in the male headship that began with the federal headship of Adam in the garden. And until the second Adam came as a representative of the elect, the male representation marked the covenant of grace in redemptive history. Every time a male Israelite saw the mark of the covenant in the flesh, He was to be reminded of the promises of God to take away the corruption of our sin due to the fallen sin nature. Also, the Lord commanded that the sign be put on the male children on the eighth day, which is a day of ceremonial and symbolic significance. On a seven-day week structure instituted by God, The eighth day is one and the same as the first day of the week. The first day represents beginning or creation. And the eighth day represents the new creation. And this is signified by the eight Sabbaths found throughout the old covenant feasts and festivals. It prefigures the joy and rest that we enjoy in the new creation through the finished work of Christ. And it's for this reason that Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day of the week 
or the first day of the week. He appeared to his disciples every eight days after his resurrection, signifying the significance of the first-slash-eighth-day resurrection, which secured that the presence of God would always be with his people. The fact that circumcision was to be performed on the eighth day of the week linked it to the right, linked the right to the things that it signified. The new heart that God promised to bring about through the cutting away of the filth of the flesh. The act of cutting away the filth of the flesh also represented the dual promissory nature of the covenant. In the covenant, God promised what? Both blessings and curses. The removal of the corruption of the sin nature was the blessing promised. The cutting off of the people of God from the presence of God was the promised curse. If the demands of the covenant were not met, the circumcised man would be cut off. And throughout the history of redemption... The curse was reiterated in temporal and typical forms, such as, just as Adam and Eve were cut off from paradise, God promised to cut off the covenant people for disobedience. So the sign of the covenant showed forth both the merciful act of cutting away the filth of the heart, as well as the justice of God in the cutting off of the covenant breaker. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living because of the transgressions of his people. And in his bloody death, he underwent the ultimate circumcision. He underwent everything that circumcision represented. He was cut off so that we might have our hearts circumcised. The covenant is broken by each and every descendant of Adam. And it is only for the cutting off of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that the blessings of the covenant might be applied to the elect, to you and I. The Apostle Paul in our text, Colossians 2, 11 through 13, speaks of the circumcision of Christ. And this is often understood to be referring to the circumcision of our hearts by Christ. But it is more nuanced than that. In context, the apostle is speaking of the union that believers have with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. When he died, they died. When he was buried, they were buried. When he rose, they rose. When Paul comes to speak of the reality of the believer's union with Christ, he does it in light of what the covenant signs signified. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he was made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses. Notice that the language of being circumcised in Christ fits into the progression from death to burial to resurrection. Circumcised is death. 
Baptism is burial leading to spiritual resurrection. Here the death of Jesus is called circumcision and the burial of Jesus baptism. And these terms denote the same reality for the believer in the old and new covenant. When old covenant believers had the substance of circumcision, circumcision, they had union with Christ to come. When New Testament believers are baptized in the Spirit, they have union with Christ, who died, was buried, and rose again. Circumcision and baptism both pointed to what Christ would do in the hearts of his people. But they first pointed to what happened to him in his bloody death. His death was a circumcision. In that the filth of the sin was cut away by the bloody cutting apart of his flesh. His death is baptism in that the filth of the sins of his people are washed away in his bloody death. Now let's return to where we left off last week. There's another inescapable truth here. If baptism has fulfilled circumcision then whoever had a right to circumcision in the Old Testament has a right to baptism in the New Testament. Baptism now signifies what circumcision signified. It has replaced it. And having replaced it as the sign of the covenant, everyone that had a right to receive the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament has a right now to receive the sign of the covenant in the New Testament, which is baptism. Now, who in the Old Testament had the right to receive the sign of the covenant, which again was circumcision? It was those men who made profession of faith in Christ, along with their descendant sons, from eight days old and upward. Adopted sons, natural born sons, slaves bought into the family, all of these being made dependent on the head. That is what it says in Genesis 17. So who had the right to the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament? It was those who made a profession of faith and their children, males then, in the Old Testament. Who has the right to baptism that exhausted the meaning of circumcision? It is those who have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their children, both male and female, eight days old and upward. Randy Booth, who I mentioned to you last week, says, Therefore, any argument against infant baptism is an argument against infant circumcision. What is one of the biggest arguments against infant baptism today? Why do you baptize a little baby when he doesn't know what's going on? Now, you better be careful about that criticism because the same thing was said about circumcision in the Old Testament. Why give a baby eight days old the sign of the covenant circumcision when he doesn't know what's going on? You see, now to criticize baptism is to criticize the Old Testament's divine ordinance of circumcision. God is the one who said to give eight-day-old babies the sign of the covenant. 
And there's another problem with that, oblig- of that objection, and that is as if you and I had to understand everything about the mystery of baptism before we can experience its power. Do you understand everything about baptism? I think not. But if someone in here does, please come and teach me. For it is a sacrament. And the definition of the sacrament, remember, is that it is a mystery. It is bigger than we can grab a hold of by an exhaustive definition. And the point is that it is not understanding what baptism is dependent on for its effectiveness in a person's life. But what is? It is faith. What does our text say? It says in verse 12, who were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. All you need to have is faith to understand, beloved. The blessings of baptism and the Lord's Supper do not come to you automatically by going through the emotions or having something done to you by a preacher. The blessings of all the sacraments and of of all the spiritual signs and seals of the covenant are received as any other blessing of salvation. And that is through faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, there's one thing I want to ask and I'll answer, which is, if the command in Genesis 17 regarding the bearing of the sign of the covenant and giving your sons the sign of the covenant from eight days on was permanent, why was the sign changed from circumcision to baptism? If the command was permanent, that throughout all history the heads of family and their sons should bear the sign of the covenant, why was the sign changed? Well, that the sign was permanent is really quite obvious. When God commanded the believer to bear the sign of the covenant and to give his sons and dependent males the sign of the covenant, it was the law of God. I mean, this wasn't a suggestion. Jehovah didn't come to Abraham and say, Abraham, I got a suggestion for you, if you'd like to do it. It will be a little inconvenient if you do want to do this, but I am making this suggestion to you. No. God said, Abraham, I want you to give your testimony to the world that you and your family belong to me. And through that, I myself will give my testimony to the world that you belong to me. I want you and your children to bear the sign of the covenant. Now, when God gives a law, how long are we to assume that law is in effect? Until we get tired of it? No, we are to assume that that law is in effect until God says, okay, you don't have to do this any longer. Did God say, remember that law I gave you about the sign of the covenant? Forget it. It's over. That was just a, for a specific purpose. You don't have to give your children the sign of the covenant any longer. And you don't have to bear the sign yourself. 
Beloved, there is no such nullification. There is nothing in the Bible anywhere that in any way even implies that the law to give yourself and your children the sign of the covenant is repealed. So heads of family are just as responsible before God today as Abraham was, not only to bear the sign of the covenant themselves, but to make sure, make sure their dependents bear that sign as well. The command has never been repealed. And I ask you, heads of households, are you obeying that command? Even though the sign of the covenant has changed, the command is still the same. It is just no longer circumcision. It is baptism. Now, why was, that, why was this changed? It was necessary because of the new covenant, because of the consummation of the old covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The new covenant brought several changes to the way God's covenant is to be administered to his people. What were some of those changes? Well, the new covenant expanded the blessings to a greater degree. There was a greater outpouring, for example, of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant expands the blessings of the covenant to more people, not just to the Jewish people, but to Gentiles and to women. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says, There is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not talking about the responsibilities of leadership or governance. He is talking about the blessings and privileges of salvation in this text. And he says, those old distinctions that were characterized in the Old Testament, they're gone. Now the New Testament doesn't make any distinction between the believing Jew and the non-Jew. It doesn't make any distinction between believing slave and believing free men. And it doesn't make any distinction between believing male and believing female. They are all equal, have equal rights to the privileges of the covenant. In the Old Testament, only males were circumcised. Only mature males took the Passover. In the New Testament, the New Covenant is an expansion of greater blessings to more people. And now both men and women, young and old, are baptized. And both men and women, boys and girls, are admitted to take the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. Because the New Covenant is not a restriction of the Old Testament believers. It is an expansion to more people. And these are not minor changes. They called for new signs that would draw attention to the greater glory of the new covenant. The covenants of the Old Testament were great and glorious, but they are of no comparison to the new covenant. And to be honest, I wouldn't want to have to have lived under the Old Testament after having lived under the new covenant. Greater blessings more glory, greater participation are pouring out of the Holy Spirit, participation in the privileges of more people. Those old distinction of male and female, Jew and Gentile, that were once so important in the Old Testament are cast aside. So the New Testament draws attention to that. 
so that instead of circumcision, it is now a sign that can be administered to men and women alike. But some of the changes in the new covenant were also to highlight the complete work of Christ. Both of the sacraments in the Old Testament required the shedding of blood. Circumcision required the shedding of blood. The Passover required the shedding of blood and the killing of the Paschal Lamb. But because of Christ's death that was once for all, obtaining of eternal redemption for all of those for whom he died when he died, the changes in the sacraments were given to highlight that fact. So there are no more bloody rites in the Christian church. No more. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. That's four zero eight eight six six five six zero seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB. That stands for Post Mailbox Number four zero two fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.